afternoon, we are continuing our study in the book of Acts. And it's no surprise, as we pick up today, Paul is still in prison. <laughs> I know you're surprised about that. He was in prison last week, and he was in prison the week before that. Actually, Paul spends quite a bit of time in prison. He's been in prison, and he uh, was put on trial before Felix, and then he was put on trial before Festus, and then of course, without any real evidence for anything that he's done. And then finally, we see today that he's brought before King Agrippa. This time, the king appears with his sister Bernice and high-ranking military officials and important people and leaders from the city. It's a, it's a pomp and circumstance moment. And uh, you can see the stage is set for something to happen. And you, you might be thinking, if you're following along and you don't know where this story is going, you might be thinking, yeah, today's the day. Today's the day we get a verdict. Finally, Paul is going to be declared innocent, which we know he is, or guilty, which the, he could be according to their standards. We think that today could be the day, but I hate to disappoint you. There is not going to be a ruling today. And so we wonder, why? Why is there the pomp and circumstance, the officialness, all the decoration for this particular moment? And I believe there's a reason. I believe the reason is because this is the moment that Paul shares with this official court the reality of Jesus at work in his life. And it's worth every bit of official pomp and circumstance. It is an important story to share, and today we're going to read it. So let me invite you uh, to turn in your Bible, or you can follow along with me today uh, as we read from the screen ahead. It's, it's kind of a long passage, so, um, you know, if you want to follow along in front of you, that might be helpful, um, but it, we're going to read today from Acts chapter 25, verse 23, all the way through Acts 26 through 23. And we start. Acts chapter 25, verse 23. The next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and entered the audience room with the high-ranking military officers and the prominent men of the city. At the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Festus said, King Agrippa, and all who are present with us, you see this man. The whole Jewish community has petitioned me about him in Jerusalem and here in Caesarea, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. I found he had done nothing deserving of death, but because he made his appeal to the emperor, I decided to send him to Rome. But I have nothing definite to write his majesty about him. Therefore, I have brought him before all of you and especially you, King Agrippa, so that as a result of this investigation, I may have something to write, for I think it is unreasonable to send a prisoner on to Rome without specifying the charges against him. And we go to verse 1. Then Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak to yourself. So Paul motioned with his hand and began his defense. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today, as I make my defense against all the accusation of the Jews, and especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently, 
The Jewish people all know the way I have lived ever since I was a child. From the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem, they have known me for a long time and can testify, if they are willing, that I conformed to the strictest sect of our religion, living as a Pharisee. And now it is because of my hope in what God has promised our ancestors that I am on trial today. This is the promise of our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. King Agrippa, it is because of this hope that these Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. On one of those journeys, I was going to Damascus, with the authority and commission of the chief priests about noon, King Agrippa. As I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun blazing around me and my companions. We fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I asked, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant, as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven, first to those in Damascus and then to those in Jerusalem and all of Judea and then to the Gentiles. I preached that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. This is why some Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But God has helped me to this very day. So I stand here and testify to a small to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Messiah would suffer as the first to rise from the dead, would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. This is Paul's testimony. It was in the royal court and among the powerful, important people of the day in this courtroom, in this moment, Paul shares what Jesus has done in his life. And you know the story. He was on the road to Damascus. On that day, Paul, or we should call him Saul because he was Saul before he became Paul, was on the road to Damascus, and he thought he was on the right road. He thought he was on the road to set things right. 
to correct people who needed correction, to help people who needed to be helped, no matter the cost. He thought he was on the right road, but in truth, he was on the wrong road and moving in the wrong direction. Has that ever happened to you? Think you're on the right road and you find out you're on the wrong road. I'll never forget for me. It's happened several times, actually. But one time, specifically, literally, I was on the wrong road. And my commute back when I was in college, I had to commute uh, to go home through the city or around the city of Chicago. Chicago is a large city. And in those days, Chicago was famous for toll booths. And they had these booths along the side of the road that you would have to pay. And they, in those days, they had two kinds of booths. They had the, the exact change booths, and that, that meant if you had the exact change, exact amount of coins, you could drop it in the bucket and go on. Or they had the booths where a person was actually inside of it, and you would get change for, for whatever you owed the highway system. Well, it was usually better to travel the, the exact change uh, road because it was faster. You just throw in your money and you go. But sometimes you had to go, if you didn't have the change, you had to go through the, the slow booth. Well, I was driving one day, and, and I thought, I've got the change. I'm going to go into the exact change booth. And so I made the commitment. And, and my friends, this is a real commitment in those days. Because when you made a decision to go into the lane on the road that would lead you to the exact change booth, there was no turning back. So I'm telling you, you made that was a serious decision because nobody in the other lane was going to let you in. So you made a decision. You were going to go into the exact change. And, and I thought I had to change. And I made the decision. And then all of a sudden, as we inched or, or moved slowly toward the booth, I started pulling out my coins. And I realized, unfortunately, that I did not have exact change. In fact, I did not even have enough change. I was in problem. It was a problem because it was like five minutes or three minutes before I got to the booth. And I'm pulling out my hair. I had more hair then. And I was so nervous. What's going to happen? And finally, I get to the, the booth and I don't have the right change. I throw in the few coins I've got, hoping maybe it'll work. It doesn't. The arm stays shut. And, and after about 30 seconds, the cars behind me figure out that I'm not going anywhere. And so then all the drivers, uh, you know, 10 drivers at least, 15, 20, begin to show their appreciation, as they do in Chicago, for someone who's in the wrong lane. They begin honking and screaming outside of their windows, things that I can't repeat today. And for five minutes, I have to sit there and endure the honking and the shouting as I wait for one of the guys in the booth to take compassion and walk across the traffic and free me from my captivity. I'll tell you, it was a painful moment to have chosen the wrong road. Have you ever chosen the wrong road? I'm sure you have. Maybe not just driving literally, but we've all chosen in one way or another. We've all been on the wrong road. And when it comes to our spiritual lives, we are all on the wrong road unless we have a course correction with Jesus. We actually start on the wrong road and we would end that way if it were not for Jesus to make a difference. That's what happened to Paul, or, or Saul, as he was called in this moment. Saul was a, a leader 
He was an important religious person, a Pharisee of Pharisees. He, he was one who kept the laws. He had accomplishments and credentials, he, but, but he was an enemy of Christianity. There was so much against, he had so much against Christianity that he was out to get them. He was out to wipe out followers of Jesus. In, in verse 11, it says, Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down. And so he's on his route. He's on his road to Damascus. And then something happens. He's on the wrong road. And then he meets Jesus. It is an authentic, real, classic conversion experience. Paul goes from the wrong road and he hops over to the right road. And so everything changes from that moment. He changes his name from Saul to Paul. That's why we call him Paul, because his life was changed. And so this is the testimony. This is what Paul shares in this portion of the book of Acts. In fact, this is the, the fullest uh, in several places in Acts and throughout the Bible there are pieces of Paul's testimony. But this is the most complete, this is the fullest expression of his testimony. And it tells of his conversion experience. And I believe there are three important things we see about conversion in this story. First of all, it shows us that conversion is required. There's no other way to move from the wrong road to the right road in life. Now, you can look like a Christian, you can act like a Christian, but it doesn't make you a Christian. I mean, look at Saul. He was the most religious and moral person you can imagine. I mean, he was so religious. He was so good. He kept all the laws. And he was, he was a high-ranking religious person. He looked so good. He looked like somebody who might be a Christian, but he was not. You see, Paul kept the religious flawlessly. In fact, Philippians 3 tells us, though I myself have reasons for such confidence, uh, he was circumcised on the eighth day. He was from the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews in regard to the law of Pharisee. He was at the top. And yet, Paul was on the wrong road. My friends, it is possible to be so involved in, in your religion, in a church, even a Christian church, and still be on the wrong road. Paul was on the wrong road, and he needed to be converted. He needed to have faith in Jesus. My friends, it's, it's not a matter of how strong is your faith. It's a matter of who do you have your faith in. Think of it, think of it this way. Uh, sometimes people say it, it doesn't matter what you believe in or, or what kind of God you believe in. All, all roads lead to heaven. All, all paths lead to God. You just got to be faithful in your path. You just got to adhere to what you believe. You just got to stick with it. Do you realize how silly that is? Do you realize how wrong that is? Take, for example, if you have two ice skaters. One of them says, I'm going to go out on a, on a sheet of ice. That's a centimeter, half centimeter thick. But I have faith in that ice. I have so much faith that I'm not worried about it one bit. Another ice skater says, well, I, I'm going to go out on two meters of ice, but I'm a little worried. I have a little bit of faith, but I'm worried it may not hold up. Which one of those, of those ice skaters is going to make it? 
You think the guy who goes out on, on a centimeter of ice, he's going to be okay? No, he's going to fall through the ice. He's going to get sick. He could die. Even if he has all the faith in the world. And then the other skater, she's a little scared. If he steps out on two meters of ice, what's going to happen to him? He's going to be okay. You see, it's not the quantity of faith that you have that matters. It's who do you have your faith in? What is your faith built upon? That's what makes the difference. And there's only one way. There's only one thing upon which you can build your life, your faith, and your entire existence and be okay. Jesus says it himself in John 14, 6. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Only Jesus is the way. Only Jesus can we build our faith in and live and live abundantly. Christian conversion is the moment you realize there is no other way. And secondly, we learn that Christian conversion is a process. Now, I know when we read about it in the Bible, and especially in Paul's testimony, it looks like all of a sudden, Paul has this moment, Saul has this moment with Jesus, and everything changes. It looks like that. And sometimes when we hear testimonies from people, they'll talk about a moment when it happens. But, I'm, but I want to tell you that it never just happens in a moment. It always happens in a process. And this is, this is because God cares so much about us that he's, he's at work in our life. And he was at work in Paul's life. And Paul, he's reacting against it. In fact, we read in verse 9 in chapter 26, he says, I do was convinced I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Now, you have to know that there were a lot of people in those days who were against Christianity. But Paul was especially passionate about persecuting Christians. He was especially hostile toward Christianity. And that's because... Something was eating at him. There was something going on in his life that was, that was a struggle. There was a, a discontentment. There was a pain. There was a, a prodding. There was a, something that Paul knew he needed to deal with. And so when Paul tells the story, he includes an important detail. He says that when Jesus appeared right before, he says, who are you? Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Do, do you know what a, a goad is? This is a vocabulary lesson for today. The goad is actually a tool that a shepherd, yeah, that's it, look at that thing. A shepherd or someone working with, 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 with cows could also use. But you see that sharp thing on the side? Uh, that's, that whole device is called a goad. And what shepherds would do is they, when, when the sheep were, were, they were going in the wrong path, they would take that thing and they would sort of nudge them in the, in the right direction. And do you know what that would feel like to a, a sheep? I, I can't imagine it would feel good. Let's just say that. Uh, the, just look at that. I mean, God, the shepherds were, were using the goads because they cared about the sheep. They were trying to prod them and poke them and push them in the right direction. And that's the point. That's, that's what a goad is. Jesus says, Saul, that's what I've been doing to you. I've been prodding you. I've pricked your life. I've been trying to get you to see you're on the wrong road. 
there's a process. Saul was being prepared. And, and thankfully, this is true. God is at work in our lives today. And maybe even now, it's, it's, it's a, a work of, of his, of his prodding, prodding, his, his goading, that he wants you to realize that you need to be on the right road. And, and something may be happening. Sometimes it's, it's the process that you feel, but Jesus is at work in your life. And, and this is what's happening for Paul. It's, it is not easy to know exactly for sure all the things that have happened for Saul, for Paul in his life. But one of the clues we have from the scripture, it comes from the story of, of Stephen. Uh, you remember that Stephen was really the first Christian martyr put to death. And Paul was there and he heard a proclamation of truth from Stephen. Actually, the, the sermon that Stephen preaches as he's about to be stoned is the longest, most detailed sermon in the book of Acts. It's, it comes from Acts chapter 7. Do you ever, you ever wonder why it's the longest, most detailed? Because Paul remembered it well. Whatever Stephen said, Paul remembered it. It was one of those messages that worked its way into his heart. He remembered it. It had an impact. And Paul was there the moment that Stephen's face turned radiant. If you remember that story in, in Acts 7, 60, and, and Stephen knelt down. He said, Lord, do not hold that sin against them. When you watch someone die like that, it does something to you. Like an angel, the face of an angel with confidence in the Lord, with forgiveness in his heart. When you watch that, it does something to you. So the Lord has been at work in Saul, Paul's life prodding, goading him, helping him in the, the most caring way to be on the right road. Conversion is a process that moves you to salvation. It moves you to the right road. It moves you closer in relationship to Jesus where God wants you to be. And maybe, maybe God's doing that right now. I mean, is there something going on in your life that you're struggling with? Is there a pain? When, when you ask the question, why is life so difficult? Why am I so tired? Why are all these bad things happening to me? When that happens, it could be that God is bringing something sharp into your life to steer you onto the right road. And if that's the case, rejoice because God is at work in your life. Maybe you need to know that so you can stop kicking against the goads. Stop fighting it and start yielding to the power of the Holy Spirit because God loves you, and he is trying to draw you to him. He is trying to give you life. Conversion is a process. And then finally, the third thing, conversion involves spiritual sight. You know, in this passage, it, it, we see how Paul is at first spiritually blind, but he's so blind he doesn't even know it. And so we read in, in Acts 26, 15, he says, then I asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. The Lord replies. Paul is in a darkness about the reality around him. In fact, Paul, in the other 
testimony in verse in, in Acts 22, Paul shares about his physical blindness. He says, my companions led me by hand into Damascus because the brilliance of the light had blinded me. When Paul got off the ground, he couldn't see a thing. He, he, the minute, though, he gains spiritual vision, he experiences blindness. Isn't that interesting? Because what is happening is, is all of a sudden, Paul, Saul, is becoming aware of his blindness. If you are blind, you don't, you're not aware that you're blind. But when you, only when you can see spiritually can you be aware that you were blind. You see, that's the paradox. And it reveals an important truth. Spiritual vision comes as you become aware of your blindness. If you don't know you're blind, if you're not conscious of spiritual blindness, then you don't have spiritual sight. But because you have sight, you realize you're blind. Here's how you know you're a Christian. It's when you can say, it's somebody who can say, I once was blind, but now I see. A Christian is someone who can see the difference. Spiritually, I was an idiot. How could have I missed it? How did I realize? How did I ever think I could do it on my own? How did I ever think there were other ways besides Jesus? But now I see. Now I realize. Now I can see. In this passage, Paul gives a very clear picture. And it happens when Jesus says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Verse 15. You have to wonder about that, don't you? Why? Why is Jesus saying, I'm the one you are persecuting? Wasn't Saul on his way to persecute Christ's followers? Wasn't he on his way to, to persecute the church? Why would Jesus say to Paul, you are persecuting me? Why did he say that? Wasn't Paul just persecuting the church? Well, he was actually persecuting Jesus. You see, we know that he was because Jesus has such an intimate relationship such radical union and solidarity with the church, the body of Christ, that a relationship is so close that the identity is, is true to say that whenever one of them are persecuted, we are persecuting Jesus. A Christian is someone who realizes that in our efforts, in our struggle, in our hostility, in our brokenness, in our sinfulness. We're not just breaking the rules. We are hostile in relationship to God. That's when you see. A Christian is a person who realizes you're not just breaking the rules, but you've been fighting Jesus when you've been trying to do it in your own way through disobedience. You say, Lord, you died for me, but I still want to be in charge of my own life. It's difficult to picture the reality of this. It's, it's a tragic reality. In sin, we are actually fighting against the one who comes to save us. Charles Spurgeon was a, a famous preacher back in the 1800s. And he tells a story that gives us a, a picture of this reality. It's a story that his listeners would have known, a true story that actually hit the newspapers uh, back in that day, and so people would have known about this story. But he tells about this, this man and his wife, and they were really mean and selfish people, but they had a son, 
And the family of, of this couple, they were so worried about the son that they came and took the son. They, bought, they purchased the son from this, this very mean and, and selfish couple, and they took him away. But this couple, they, they just they became very terrible people. They, they became uh, such that they would rob people who lived around them. And, and it got to be so bad that there was this deserted road and, and they would go out and hide. And when people, travelers would go by, they would go out and, and they would mug them and they would, they would beat them up. And, and they got to, it got to be so bad that uh, there was one occasion that the, the father, and, and he was out there and he was really angry about the rich people because he thought that every problem they had in life was because there were the rich people out there. And so he saw coming to him kind of dark one night, a rich person. And, and he was so angry. He was feeling so violent that day that when he attacked that person, he killed him. He killed the person who was, who was coming, the rich young man that was coming to, to, in his direction. Do you know who the rich young man was? It was his son. You see, what had happened is the young, the boy was taken away and given an opportunity to be successful in life. And he was loved and he was nourished. And, and then he heard about his family, his true family, and they were struggling. And he decided that he was going to go help them. And so he was on his way to share his resources, to share his love, his encouragement, to reach out to the, his father. And his father didn't even know it. After he was arrested, the father realized what had happened. The father, he thought he was just breaking the law, but he was actually killing the one who had come to save him. A Christian is someone who realizes that. That in our sin, in our disobedience, we are fighting against Jesus who's coming to save us. A Christian is somebody who sees the truth about who we once were and lives to tell the story. Do you realize that this is personal between you and God? This is personal. Do you realize that God loves you so much? In 1 John 3.16, it says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, who we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. The only right road in life is to grasp that Jesus laid down his life for you. He gave up his life so that you could live. You could experience fullness, joy, and peace, and hope. Through the sacrifice of Christ, God offers you a new heart. It's really a heart transplant, if you think of it that way. Do you know that the Bible... In the Bible, it says you can actually get a heart transplant, a spiritually new heart. In the book of Ezekiel, there's this amazing verse, Ezekiel eleven nineteen, says, I will give them a new heart and a new mind. I will take away their stubborn heart of stone and will give them an obedient heart. It means that God is willing to, to do surgery. He's willing to remove our stubborn hearts, our sinful hearts, our stubborn hearts. He's willing to remove them and replace them with a heart that's warm, with, with that beats with compassion for the things God loves. A, God, a, a heart that reaches out even in the face of resistance, a heart that beats when people are in trouble, a heart that is like God's own heart. 
It's actually, it's actually a heart transplant, if you think about it. I don't know if you know much about transplants. Uh, some of you are medical students. Um, transplants are, I mean, it's an amazing thing, but it's pretty hard sometimes to find people who are willing to, trans to donate an organ. Uh, in fact, it's, it's kind of a struggle. Uh, we were fortunate in our ministry to have met several people who were willing to give a kidney to someone in need. It really is a beautiful thing to, to make that sacrifice, to give an organ to someone that will save their life. But if you need a, if you need a heart transplant, what's the likeliness? What's, how likely is it that someone's going to say, hey, here's my heart. You take it. I mean, do you know anybody who would do that? I mean, I, I don't know anybody who would say, here, just take, take my heart. But maybe I do, actually. Maybe I do know someone. When God looked down at the human race and saw that only a transplant would do, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, said to God the Father, here, take my heart. And God did that. On an operating, operating table in the shape of a cross, God removed the heart of Jesus and offers it to anyone who would accept and receive the truth of Christ. On that operating table, God, the great surgeon, lifted the heart and nature of Jesus and offered it to the world. He offered it because he knew that our hearts could never change. You see that? You, you, can, you can take that. You got, we got, we're stuck with these stubborn hearts. And you can, you can try to teach that heart something. You can bring that heart to church, sit it in a pew, make it sing songs, make it read the Bible, but that stubborn heart it's not going to change. I mean, you can make it, you can dress it like a Christian. You can make it look like a Christian. You can teach it Christian words, but it's not going to change. Only a heart transplant will do. And when it happens, when you accept that heart of God, the heart of Jesus, and, and let it come into you, your life changes. Everything changes. You become in the image you become loving. You become like Jesus. The Bible calls this theos dynamos. It means divine power. I like to translate it, God dynamite. It means you got God dynamite inside of you. And that's enough. That's enough to live this life in the way God wants you to live. In fullness, and in joy, and peace, and hope with the heart of God in you. That's the difference between being on the right road and every other road in life that promises you life but leads you to death and destruction. There's only one road, and that's the road Jesus has for you. Which way will you go? Let us pray. Lord, we are so thankful that you have and are offering to us your own heart. You are, you are offering the help we need to live life on the right road in the right way and most importantly, in a right relationship with you. Help us, Lord, to stop fighting against you, but to, but to surrender to you, to, to yield to your spirit who is here today so that we may live abundantly and eternally with you. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.